This is the TriDot Podcast. TriDot uses your training data and genetic profile combined with predictive analytics and artificial intelligence to optimize your training, giving you better results in less time with fewer injuries. Our podcast is here to educate, inspire, and entertain. We'll talk all things triathlon with expert coaches and special guests. Join the conversation and let's improve together. Together. Well, hello there, everyone. I am thrilled that you are joining us today so we can chat about triathlon and nutrition, which are two of my favorite topics. And Andrew gave me the reins of the show today so that we can specifically focus on fueling the female body for athletic endeavors. Joining me to help put the pieces of the puzzle together are Dr. Krista Austin and pro triathlete Elizabeth James. Dr. Austin is an exercise physiologist and nutritionist who consulted with the U.S. Olympic Committee and the English Institute of Sport. She has a Ph.D. in exercise physiology and sports nutrition and a master's degree in exercise physiology. And she is a certified strength and conditioning specialist. Krista, thanks for coming back on the show. Well, thanks for having me back. And it's great to get an opportunity to work with the new uh, co-host of TriDot's podcast. So, Vanessa, excited to do this one with you. Thanks, Krista. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, We also have pro triathlete and coach Elizabeth James here with us. Elizabeth is a USAT Level 2 and Ironman U certified coach who quickly rose through the triathlon ranks using TriDot from a beginner to top age grouper to professional triathlete. She is a Kona and Boston Marathon qualifier who has coached triathletes with TriDot since 2014. Elizabeth, thanks for being here. I am really looking forward to talking about nutrition with you today. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I just absolutely love the episodes we've done in the past with Dr. Austin. So it is such a privilege to be here. Um, And, you know, you and I, we're going to just pick her brain about all things nutrition related and especially as it pertains to our female athletes today. Absolutely. Uh, This is going to be amazing. So I'm Vanessa, your average triathlete with elite level enthusiasm. We are going to start things off with our warm-up question, which I can hardly wait to hear about from Krista and Elizabeth. We will then move into the main set talking about specific nutritional needs of female athletes, and then we'll cool down with our coach cool down tip. Before we get too deep into the show today, I want to give a shout out to our good friends at UCAN. Here at TriDot, we are huge believers in using UCAN to fuel our training and racing. In the crowded field of nutrition companies, what separates UCAN from the pack is the science behind Live Steady, the key ingredient in UCAN products. While most energy powders are filled with sugar or stimulants that cause a spike and crash, UCAN energy powders powered by Live Steady deliver a steady release of complex carbs to give you stable blood sugar and provide long-lasting energy. So head over to their website, youcan.co, that's U-C-A-N dot C-O, and use the code TRIDOT to save 20% off your entire order. It used to be 10%, but the fine folks at UCAN have upped it to 20% off for TRIDOT Nation. So once again, that's youcan.co, promo code TRIDOT. Time to warm up. Let's get moving. Today's warm-up question is about photography, because aside from triathlon and nutrition, photography is another favorite hobby of mine. So what is the most recent multi-sport related photo on your phone camera reel? Elizabeth, let's start with you. All right. Um, well, I mean, training for multi-sport, my, my answer is pretty easy there, because it would be from the swim session earlier this morning. Um, I was very fortunate to have my husband Charles with me there at the pool. It was just a long aerobic swim session, and he was capturing some video for me so that I could look it over myself and then send it to my coach later today. So I've actually got quite a few pictures of, uh, of my swim from earlier today. Um, if, we're, if we're thinking more along the events of like, I guess, along the lines of events versus training, though, um, it would have to be a photo from Laura Sadal. And this would be one that she sent to me from Challenge Daytona. And I wasn't able to be there to cheer on our Tridot crew. 
Um, but my JD crew teammate Sid was there cheering a bunch of other people on. She snapped this really cute picture of she and coach Joanna soon after Joanna finished the race. So, um, that would probably be one of my most recent multi-sport event photos on the camera reel. I heard that challenge Daytona was an incredible experience. So I can't, uh, I can only imagine that the photos that came out of that were pretty, pretty awesome. And what about you, Krista? What's on your photo reel that is multi-sport related? Well, I guess I'm going to give you a little bit of a different answer. You know, I've been doing a lot of work right now with a sport called team handball. And technically that sport's like a function of football, basketball, hockey, soccer, and wrestling just all rolled into one. So I've got action packed photo reels for sure. Um, so I would say that's, that's what's on my phone at the moment, uh, if you were to dive in. So a little bit different from triathlon, but it gives us some variety here on the show. Absolutely. That sounds like a really fun sport to watch, actually, with all of those different aspects rolled into one. Um, I'm going along with you. I, mine is not 100% multi-sport related. I'm not sure if it classifies as a sport either, but my parents were just here recently visiting us in Sydney and we did our own sort of, sort of triathlon that was fit for all ages and abilities for the most part. Uh, we did a transportation triathlon on one day on our way to the zoo, which is unconventional multi-sport, but I consider it to be one because we started off on the light rail train, so that was uh, number one. Number two, we transferred over to a water taxi. And then number three, we finished off the trek on the gondola. You have to take a gondola to get all the way up to the zoo entrance. Um, so I'm classifying this as a, a multi-sport because there were three events. It was really long and it most definitely required fueling and a little bit of problem solving as well. So <laughs> sounded exactly like a, a triathlon to me. Um, I'm going to throw this question out there to the TriDot community, so head on over to the I Am TriDot Facebook page, and I can hardly wait to see all of the multi-sport pictures. On to the main set. Going in three, two, one. Hey folks, TriDot is currently running the 2023 edition of our annual research project called the Pre-Season Project, which was recently featured in Triathlete Magazine and New York Weekly. We are looking for non-TriDot athletes who want to jump into the research project this year. Qualifying athletes get two free months of TriDot training. My journey with TriDot started with the Pre-Season Project in 2020, and I thought I was going to do the free trial, learn how to do the program, and then end my subscription. But I fell in love with the training schedule, and in two months, I saw huge improvements in my swim, bike, and in the run. More importantly, I enjoyed the TriDot community so much that I was hooked. I continue to get faster in all three disciplines. I am the most fit version of myself, and my love for the sport of triathlon continues to grow. So... If you are a podcast listener and you have never given our training a try, head over to trydot.com backslash PSP to learn more and apply. Nutrition is what some people call the fourth discipline of triathlon, as it can make or break your training session or race. We have known for a long time that there are differences between males and females, and recently there has been a movement to recognize these differences. It is thrilling to see an increase in research on females and how their nutritional needs might be different from that of males, and the three of us are here to talk about some of the things that female athletes can use to their advantage to take their training and racing to the next level. So Krista and Elizabeth, I was walking past a pharmacy the other day and in the window there was this display for the man shake on one wall and the lady shake on another wall, <laughs> which was just mind blowing to begin with this marketing, but it clearly worked because it sparked my curiosity to check out the differences between these two products. Um, I found out that they were weight loss supplements and geared towards the general population. So I wasn't at all surprised that there was mostly a difference in the vitamins and minerals, like more calcium and iron for the lady shake compared to the man shake. But this also got me thinking about triathletes and how they put a lot of physical stress on their bodies. And I'm wondering if you can give a quick rundown of the nutrients and extra requirements that female athletes might need to have in their diets. Well, I'll go ahead and kick off for you, Vanessa. I mean, really, it depends on the volume of training and as a result, the overall energy intake. So, you know, typically women are on the smaller side when compared to a male. And so oftentimes the 
challenge we may have in terms of getting all our micronutrients in or the highest quality of you know, amino acids in our diet is oftentimes due to the total energy intake. So when our volume of training is high, it's a lot easier. But as it diminishes, that's when we either have to get that much more refined in what we take in or understand that supplementation may in fact be necessary to ensure we, you know, hit all the wickets. I'd say, you know, both males and females do have a tendency to need insurance for certain minerals. Those are ones like vitamin D, calcium, and iron, where in both populations, um, I would say I've seen it equivocal, okay. to be honest. Um, I've never seen uh, a predominance in one of them or the other. And I think a lot of it's because it doesn't necessarily have to do always with just total energy intake. It has to do with exposure to the sun, um, the person's metabolism. You know, so metabolism requires iron. And then sometimes just the tendency or ability to take in products or foods that have higher levels of calcium in them. Okay, the higher the level of calcium, um, sometimes people just don't respond to it well because it tends to come from more dairy based products or items like that. So oftentimes you have to look at a few factors to really understand if there's differences between males and females and then understanding why do those differences occur in an athlete. I'm really glad that you mentioned iron as one of those. And I want to I want to stay there for just a moment. I know that iron um, is something that I've needed to supplement over the past few years. And I also recommend that my coached athletes do blood work at least annually. Um, And many of my female athletes, as well as a few of the males, have needed to begin in iron supplementation. Now, I mean, we've talked about how there's not necessarily like a big difference between male and female in terms of, you know, some of those um, things that may need to be supplemented. But are we more likely to see this in, in athletes versus the general population that may need more of that supplementation for iron? I would say yes, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, the more you train on the endurance side, the more likely you are to use iron as a cofactor in metabolism, but also to create an inflammation within the body that may inhibit iron absorption. So I think that's why a lot of times the iron deficiency that I've been most familiar with is in younger athletes, especially, okay, especially the college age population. They're typically getting to these highest volumes that they've ever experienced before. They're still learning Mm -hmm. to eat right. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's where I've always seen my largest prevalence. And then it's jumping into, you know, the other disciplines or the other age ranges, I should say, of endurance sport. But I will tell you, I see it equivocally because I think it's the lack of education as to, you know, how I should even be eating in that age group that really lends towards that iron deficiency. So, for example, when I was working with college students, they were great at going and grabbing their favorite slice of pizza at a place called Moe's. But Moe's didn't have a lot of iron availability in the food, you know. And you kind of were just like, okay, well, that's great. We love Moe's. We're going to Moe's. But at the end of the day, they usually were iron deficient because they didn't eat iron-rich foods. Some of my best calorie intake athletes as females, especially for size, were iron deficient. Why? Because they chose the wrong foods. They loved chocolate cake, Pringles, all the good things because they had the metabolism. They had the ability to burn it off, and they just ate whatever. They didn't really pay attention. So getting them to learn the benefit of a pound of ground chuck and how you can make it into all these different things, you know, like chili, tacos, a hamburger, um, you know, spaghetti bolognese, things like that was just something they had to learn. But it was really equivocal amongst the males and the females. Now, as you get older into different age groups, you'll see it more so in those females that are smaller, I would say. And a lot of it is just that they're not taking in the bioavailable iron, or they may be on a specialized type of nutrition plan to help manipulate body weight, such as, you know, being on a vegan diet, and they don't know how to incorporate enough iron availability because they just haven't been taught how to refine it well enough. You know, I've had great results with vegan athletes getting enough iron from their diet, but it takes a lot of work. So the question is, what is driving it? Why do they need something? Okay. And oftentimes what you just find is that women are more inclined to kind of trend towards, 
you know, just a lower calorie intake or more specialized nutrition plans to help control body weight and composition. Um, it's just what I found over the years. I could be right, I could be wrong, but it's also when you take a look at a common supplement, like let's say a protein powder, in a female you'll find that they're taking it because they cannot get the available amino acids like they need, okay, uh, because they, they do have caloric control that they need to implement. So they'll use a protein powder to help them meet it versus just looking at total protein intake. Conversely, with the males, I find that they're like, well, how do I help control my appetite more so? How, you know, how do I get enough calories in? So it's factors like that that they tend to have rationale for using the protein powder. So a lot of times it's about the why. Gosh, I, I love that. I mean, I've always appreciated how you help athletes understand why they may need to take something. I mean, we aren't just blindly putting things into our body thinking or hoping that it should help our performance. I mean, at least that's what we shouldn't <laughs> be doing. Um, I mean, there needs to be not only a need for it, but then also a benefit from doing so. Um, and so, you know, as I'm, I'm thinking of my own personal experience here, I know that I use a combination of my blood work results and then some micronutrient tracking to determine what I may need to supplement. And Dr. Austin, I know we've, you know, kind of covered this before, but I think it's worth reviewing. What would you say is the best way for an athlete to know what, like if anything, they should be supplementing into their diet? So I take usually at least a dual approach. One is taking a look at blood work at a frequent enough, uh, you know, occurrence so that you can properly evaluate in an objective manner. And then secondly, doing a dietary analysis. And then third, looking at a performance outcome. Like, okay, maybe you are normal according to these ranges on a biochemical test. Um, you might be low normal. Um, or, you know, you have adequate intake according to that nutrition analysis but maybe the performance isn't there. And so what I always encourage athletes to do is kind of use a multifactorial approach to say, okay, do I possibly need to increase my ferritin stores? Is there a reason to do that? Um, you know, do I need to change the way I eat to fuel my body better and therefore get a better performance outcome? So at least those three for me is kind of important. Mm. I think that's something um, that is easily done by an athlete is, you know, getting their blood work done by their doctor. And then they could even use an app or some kind of tracking measure to look at their dietary analysis. And a lot of them are really great because they show the breakdown of all of the different minerals and nutrients and calories and macronutrients. And, and so these, these things are, are available and easy to access for anyone. So I think it's a great idea to, to do all of those things. I think the only thing I got to point out is, you know, for some endurance athletes, you know, a lot are type A personalities. They dig into data and sometimes they can get a little too obsessed with that data. Okay. So I think I encourage all athletes just to know when data for them is maybe a little too much and just to ask for help from someone else, whether it's a sport nutrition professional or your coach to take a look um, because sometimes numbers get us as endurance athletes. So just a word of wisdom, because we can't always, you know, process the numbers, especially on our own, or have someone that you consult with to understand your numbers and help walk you through the yes, process. Yes, I 100% agree with that. It's always beneficial to get an extra set of eyes on those types of, um, of it, that type of information that's coming in. I, I think that one of the most frequent words that athletes talk about in terms of nutrition is protein. So we're just going to fit right in here with this next question. What are the protein requirements for female athletes? And are there specific types of protein that are better suited for females compared to males? There's lots to unpack there. So Elizabeth, could you start us out with the protein recommendations and then Dr. Austin follow up with the specifics for women? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, first of all, I have to go back to just how you emphasize protein. I think right now our society is just like kind of on this obsession with yeah. protein. And it's like, you know, you can't even go to the grocery store without looking at the packaging. And it's like, oh, grams of protein in this, grams of protein in that. I mean, goodness, like even the brownies are like five <laughs> grams of protein here. Um, so, <laughs> you know, we're, we're kind of obsessed with it as a society right now and like thinking that, you know, this is kind of a, a big push that we need. 
Now, on the flip side of that, I mean, protein is is important, um, but I, I'm sure that we'll kind of go through this and it's, you know, not kind of our end all be all what we need to camp out on. We we still need that balanced approach and we need those fats. We need those carbohydrates as well. Um, so I guess, you know, kind of taking a step back off my little uh, ramp there, um, let's go and answer your question in terms of <laughs> just the general recommendations. Um, a lot of the literature points to like this range from 1.2 to 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. And, and that's per day. Now that's a rather wide range. I mean, it, mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, that's, that's pretty huge. So I know that's something that we'll need to dive into further as we sort through this question. Um, I mean, for endurance athletes, you know, that's maybe a little lower. Um, typically that shows kind of the 1.2 to 1.4 grams per kilogram per day. When you start adding in some resistance training, then there's a greater need for some of that protein, might up it to 1.6, 1.7. And here's where, I mean, the type of activity that we're doing is going to really influence what our body needs in terms of those protein intakes. I mean, somebody that is doing some, you know, light jogging and yoga is going to be very different than someone that is in a bodybuilding competition or even an endurance athlete. So we've got this really wide range of recommendation um, kind of for the general population. And then based off of activity is where we get more specific. That's great uh, general information. Thank you for that. Um, Dr. Austin, any specific recommendations for women versus men? Yeah, I think the biggest thing I try to do is to get males and females actually to pay attention to any influence that factors like the menstrual cycle or age, um, you know, maybe having on their need for protein intake. So for example, with some women, depending on how noticeable the influence of their menstrual cycle is, on their ability to perform or their ability just to feel good during certain phases, we will in fact go in and manipulate the amount of protein to help them feel better, to help them perform better. So for example, in the luteal phase of a woman's menstrual cycle, what you see is that oftentimes the response they're getting is the antagonization of progesterone with estrogen. And on top of that, they've got a hormone called prolactin that's increasing water retention it's increasing sodium retention from the kidneys. And sometimes if you're taking in all the same levels of carbohydrates that you typically do, they just report feeling sluggish, okay? They have these highs and lows. And a lot of it is that they're having a greater reliance on fat as a fuel source, or they're having a greater reliance on carbohydrate as a fuel source, depending on how much of a a change you actually see in the hormones of estrogen and progesterone to create that luteal phase, okay? So at the end of the day, I try to take that into account with women who notice a change. And we will, in fact, drive protein uh, content up. Um, It helps reduce some of the water retention. Um, We'll make sure that their hydration practices are really on point and then see if that, you know, turns around and helps performance. You know, the biggest thing is that estrogen usually is a very anabolic hormone. So it helps us build muscle. But when progesterone is there to antagonize it, you know, you sit there and go, okay, we're not able to be as anabolic as we usually are. So maybe there's a reason why we want to increase protein, you know, during that phase, okay? It's about a 10-day phase, really, that you're trying to account for. So if you've got like a 26 to 28-day cycle, you're talking about a significant chunk of time there that we will actually spend at a relatively higher protein intake for that individual. Now, they might be on the lower end of the typical recommendation for athletes, and all we've got to do is push it up towards that higher end, or in the cases of some females, depending on caloric intake, we may push above the recommended range of 2.2 grams per kilogram body weight. And what they've actually shown is that, you know, for short periods of time, that's absolutely fine. So just know that women may have a greater need. The other point in time that you may find a greater need for protein, and this is both for males and females, is as they move on into an older age in life and you see a decrease in estrogen or in testosterone in a male's case, and they actually need to do whatever they can to help maintain muscle mass. So they can maintain metabolism, they can maintain strength. 
their ability to actually do high intensity workouts. So there are good reasons to pay probably a little bit more attention than to just the general guidelines. But just know that, you know, a lot of the women I've worked with over the years, they will talk about their menstrual cycle and some of the effects that they tend to experience during it. Um, So really important just to pay attention to each person as an individual. I just feel like getting out of my chair and running laps around the room because I am so excited to hear that there is a fluctuation in how we feel that's related to the hormones that that we're, you know, pumping out at different times of our cycles. And and to hear that there is an impact on what we eat during those different phases of the cycle is just mind blowing. And I, I just appreciate so much your wisdom in this area. Thank you so much. I know that's going to help a lot of people um, to help to regulate how they're feeling. You know, that's really amazing. Well, what they have to remember, too, is that some women won't feel anything at all. You know, they have like little blips to really create their menstrual cycles. And I've had, you know, some of my athletes say, I want to measure this. I want to see how much my hormones change over the course of my menstrual cycle. I say, okay, yeah, that's fine. And they take a look at it. And what they find in some instances is that small fluctuations create their menstrual cycle. Um, And in other instances, there are major changes in those hormones. You see major surges in estrogen for some women. And you're wondering why they feel so powerful in that late follicular and ovulation phase. I mean, their estrogen has surged and it's very anabolic. It's known for promoting muscle contractility. And so those women that say, yeah, I feel really good if you periodize off my menstrual cycle or help me manipulate my nutrition that way. It's not a false experience. It's very real. But they are the ones having those larger shifts in hormones. And the most recent research backs that, that when they measured relative change in females, they found that to be the factor that was most impactful towards what they experienced throughout their menstrual cycle. So important to understand. It probably understands or it probably explains why men feel it more so as they age or when they're doing anything that suppresses testosterone levels. So I'll get that question from males as well. They'll say, you know, why is it that during certain phases of training, I really feel like I need higher levels of protein intake? And I said, well, you're listening to your body um, because you may be suppressing testosterone with endurance training. And so you turn around and say, why can't my body's trying to repair? It's trying to do something here. And it doesn't have the same overall uh, concentration of testosterone consistently. And so it may be that the protein just becomes that much more important. So something to think about. I don't think the guys are totally, you know, off the radar. I think they need to be considered just like women do. So they may be doing training as well that impacts their need for protein. So I know we've talked a little bit about, you know, as getting into those different age groups and kind of the protein requirements that may change. I mean, for the males, the decrease in testosterone may be requiring some additional protein. And, you know, females as they're aging, going into perimenopause, menopause, I mean, is, is there a big change in terms of how much a female should be taking in for protein as she goes into these different age groups? I would say yes, absolutely, unless they're already at that higher end of normal. But I noticed that as women age, they've started catching on to a new nutritional trend, which is called the carnivore diet. <laughs> it's a little bit different than the concept of ketogenesis, where in carnivore, they do more of just, you know, animal proteins, right? So they're getting a higher protein intake, a little bit of a higher fat intake. And while they're supposed to eliminate carbs, typically as endurance athletes, they're not and you don't want them to, but they'll start to trend that way. So envision if you are that menopausal female or you're starting to go through menopause, and all of a sudden you have these declines in estrogen. Okay, you can't produce the same force and stimulate the muscle with strength training like you used to. You're not as anabolic as you used to because you don't have as much estrogen. You're sitting there going, how do I hold on to all this? And so sometimes the only thing we can do is to manipulate what we can control. And that's the protein intake in the diet and the frequency with which we do strength training. So with a lot of women, I recommend that they increase the frequency of strength training. And I mean heavy strength training so that they can actually try to maintain muscle mass, maintain metabolism, so they don't see the weight gain and what have you. Um, They also won't see the decrements in performance if they can maintain their strength. So we try to go after those factors as they age. 
Okay, so kind of camping out here for a little bit longer. One of the other common questions, or I guess maybe more of a discussion point that I get from some of my female athletes, especially as they are getting a little bit older into some of those upper age groups, is in regards to creatine, and especially coupled with some some heavier strength training. I mean, we do know that creatine provides, you know, an energy supply to the muscles during high intensity training activities. Um, I know that there are some research studies that show that, you know, it can help build the lean muscle since it can sustain that higher energy level throughout those more intense workouts. And that sometimes it can support mental clarity by improving the oxygen uptake in the brain, which can, you know, offer just kind of that uh, function in terms of like not having that foggy brain during those challenging workouts. So, I mean, with what we know about creatine, do you recommend that for female athletes? And, and if so, under what circumstances? I would say it's all dependent on the, the athlete themselves. Um, you know, some women carry more muscle mass. They have different responses to creatine. Um, but if they have an interest, absolutely. But I think it's about strategic use. So I tend to follow a protocol that they've shown to have efficacy in terms of you know, optimizing training and workouts and performance where you give a gram of creatine prior to it. Um, and then sometimes if they respond to that, they respond well, we'll do, you know, up to a gram in, in like a recovery shake. Um, the reason we do that is because a lot of women don't care for the extra water retention of the actual creatine protocols that are out there where they're taking three to five grams a day. So we'll be very intentional with it to ensure they have the fuel supply to help fuel the workout and then recover the muscle. So I try to approach it that way with my female athletes because typically they tell me they don't care for the, the water retention effects. So it's all about how you approach it. Um, and I think it's always worth a try. You know, are they a responder or are they not a responder to it? So just know that the same protocol with one female may not work for another female. Um, and they've showed that repeatedly in the research literature with creatine. It may just be because some women naturally have more phosphocreatine stores in the muscle itself. So the body just kind of hits the reject button. Whereas if you're more inclined to deplete those stores, providing an external source obviously might be of, of benefit. So it's about working with the individual, I would say. Now let's switch gears here to a different macronutrient, fat. There has been a lot of research done on the ketogenic diet, which includes increasing fat consumption and minimizing consumption of carbohydrates. Is there any evidence that keto or low-carb diets are beneficial for females? Um, you know, I've always been someone who's a big proponent of trying to make sure women, you know, don't run low on energy availability. Um, but at the same time, you will have certain medical conditions where a high-fat diet may be of benefit, especially a condition like PCOS, so polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, where you do have higher levels of hormone concentrations, and it may be that a ketogenic diet helps control all of that. Uh, might also help control their insulin response because insulin in and of itself is a key factor with regards to that disease state. Another one might be diabetes. Um, that's probably gonna be more common in women who are a little bit older or who need significant weight loss. And so that's where we do wanna take the circumstance you know, into consideration. And then there's of course those females who just sit there and say, I don't feel good on carbohydrates or the recommended range of carbohydrates. We need to look for alternative fuel sources for them. Maybe that's giving them you know, ketone esters. Maybe that's putting them on a more high fat diet. You have to look at overall, how is that helping them do they stay healthy? And that means for those women who should be having a menstrual cycle, having that menstrual cycle, right? Um, so you may just have a more carbohydrate controlled approach. Um, and then for others, making sure that whatever health factors might need to be addressed, like cholesterol control, I've seen that be a major negative impact of high fat diets, um, or just even mood, okay? <laughs> Sometimes when we get on very, uh, stringent nutritional protocols, people talk about the shift in the person and their personality. So I try to take all these factors into consideration, but if there for sure is a medical aspect, we want to make sure that we're, we're pursuing what's in their best interest. Now, as we, you know, continue to look at some of these maybe specific 
dietary guidelines or a, a stringent, um, you know, recommendation of, of how to eat. One of the things that I also think is really important for us to discuss is, is kind of the topic of weight loss and that during athletic training. Now, I've coached some female athletes before um, that have had the desire to lose weight while triathlon training. And and this can often be challenging. And I mean, first of all, I just have to say, Dr. Austin, you have been the greatest resource because it's like, okay, let's, let's first figure out, do we need to lose the weight? And if so, then let's get Dr. Austin on board so that we can do this in, in a very intelligent way while still being able to, you know, maintain some level of training. Because energy intake still needs to, you know, match the energy expenditure to maintain that high level of training. And, you know, maybe not necessarily match it completely if we're looking for weight loss, but at least be at a point where we can build and repair body tissue. We can, you know, cover the energy costs of daily living. We can prevent illness, maintain reproductive function. I mean, as you've talked about, low energy intake is is scary stuff. I mean, not only is there the risk of fatigue and injury, but menstrual dysfunction, lack of improvement and performance. And I mean, there's just, you know, kind of the beginning of the list of some things that we don't want to go down. So, you know, when you have an athlete and I guess male or female here that asks for advice on how to best lose weight while still fueling appropriately, what, what would you tell them? So I think the first thing that I always do is to say, okay, look, how much wiggle room do we have here? And then secondly is to set their expectations appropriately. So if you've ever attended some of my tri-dot nutrition sessions that I do for tri-daughters, you know, I talk about that expectation where we try to work in increments with weight loss or shifts in body weight period that are reasonable, okay, and that we can manage psychologically. So I tend to work in like five pound increments typically and say, okay, we're not going to push past this point. And the question is, where is your wiggle room and what is the impact of changing your diet while you're in heavy training? Now, I've done it successfully in athletes, but those were also my most dedicated athletes that said, script out the nutrition plan for me because otherwise I'll go off rails on this because I am training so hard right now. I've got to have it, you know, spoon fed to me. And I've said, okay, there's been good reason to do that. We're working on optimizing performance. So we script it out and they follow the script. Does it work? Absolutely. Um, We usually use techniques like volumetrics. We make sure that carbohydrate availability is not too low. Um, We make sure protein intake is high enough to ensure they aren't breaking down muscle mass. So we work on all those factors, and usually mine have always said to me if they're in heavy training, write it out for me, just tell me what to do, because otherwise I'm not going to be able to do this. Because they've tried it typically on their own, and they go all over the scale. And so I think the biggest thing is controlling the amount of weight they want to lose and psychologically saying, hey, we're going to take this one step at a time, um, and making sure that they know how to script that out and what's going to be required to really help hit the goals. So I remember with one of my athletes, she said, I needed one kilogram at a time. She's like, we're at that point where I want to see the effects of one kilogram. And I said, okay, no problem. We'll do that acutely and from a long-term perspective, mainly because we were test driving every kilo. But she also said, look, what it takes for me to do this is so restrictive. And she meant restrictive in the sense that she was a foodie. She loved going out to eat. And she knew part of getting the job done meant eating at home a lot and not living some of the lifestyle factors that she actually enjoyed. So I think it's all about, you know, how far are you willing to push it? And is that actually necessary? You know, some women, it's not necessary. The The return on investment isn't going to be there. In her case, it was. So I said, okay, let's try it. But we always have to sit back and, and take all of that into account. Can you describe for us what nutritional periodization actually is and how someone might implement that in into their own training schedule? Yeah. So what happens with nutrition periodization is it's usually really dependent on goals initially. So if someone goes into their triathlon cycle and they're like, look, 
I really don't have any specific goals to towards, you know, nutrition, body weight, body composition, things of that nature. Nutrition periodization just really doesn't apply. And I would say for a lot of new triathletes with everything they're learning and everything they're doing, it's probably not the road to initially go down for you because you're going to just need to learn the basics. However, as triathletes progress, what they start to realize is that they do have a body weight, body composition aspect that they want to take a look at. They have a greater need for recovery. Um, they need to address things like inflammation, um, like diminishments in micronutrients. So once they learn that that's something they've got to pay attention to, we typically scale out the year and say, okay, what are we going to address at each of these time points? In the off season, it's about recovery replenishment of stores, uh, making sure the immune system is good because oftentimes heavy training compromises that immune system. And also understanding if we're going to take on any new dietary approaches because we want to do that with as little stress on the body as possible. So we tend to start those changes in the actual preseason. As you build into the season, you're hoping that goals around weight loss and body composition are achieved early enough that as you get into heavier training loads that we can manipulate the macronutrients, carbohydrate, fat, and protein to help ensure the recovery of the muscle, to help make sure you're not in significant energy deficits while you're underneath heavy training loads, you have the ability to recover appropriately. So that's oftentimes why we like to use periodization because it's intentional planning for success. That's, that's the definition of it, regardless of whether it's nutrition or training periodization. So we encourage that with athletes because oftentimes if they don't understand the concept, I see them go running into competition and they just haven't thought about it. They do it at the last minute. They try something new. They get excited or they get forgetful and they just end up with kind of an outcome that they say, that's not what I had wanted. Um, so teaching periodization um, and when to implement it more strongly for an athlete is really, really key. I know with a lot of tri-dot athletes, they'll get periodization, they're training regardless, okay? But the actual nutrition side will be forgotten um, or not something they're, they're always aware of just because it's not something that naturally you teach to every person, okay? We want to do it when it's time to do it. Um, because otherwise we do want you to focus on enjoying your triathlon, enjoying your training and not getting too, uh, I, I guess I would say obsessive or too type A, too data driven in that process. So I'm really big on making sure athletes are in that right place before they go down the periodization road. You know, something that you mentioned several times was the impact and the importance of recovery at different stages of the training cycle. And I think that that's something that a lot of athletes overlook is how important and valuable that recovery period is. In terms of recovery of the muscular, like the musculoskeletal system, but also in terms of the nutrient stores that we sometimes deplete if we've had this excess of training. Um, I would like to hop back to the weight loss just for a second, um, because sometimes with weight loss, we get these unfavorable changes that might occur as an athlete might begin to underfuel. So I'm, I'm just wondering what are some of the signs to watch out for if there is um, underfueling that could be potentially happening? I always say first and foremost is, is performance. But what we oftentimes get concerned about with females is a loss of menstrual cycle or any indication that there's an injury related to bone or soft tissue that may be a function of inadequate micronutrients or macronutrients, okay? When I work with my female athletes, I actually expect that when they get to the higher levels, we're gonna see some disruption in their menstrual cycle. That's not uncommon. And it's not something that you should sit there and go, oh, you know, this is so scary, right? One of the things that I learned working with a coach years ago was that he said, yeah, he said, most elite female athletes are ones that are pressing really hard with a high enough training load are going to step out into this zone for a short period of time. And he says, the key is it's got to be short. And he was very right. And they're not going to have their menstrual cycle. It may be anywhere from six weeks to three months in which, he, you know, they don't have it. But when you start pressing past three months, and unless it's really intentional, I've seen very, very top athletes go to six and even nine months. Um, 
you know, we need to kind of raise a flag of concern. But what I try to teach a lot of mine is that we want to make sure we don't miss it for more than three consecutive cycles in a row. And if possible, you know, always make sure we have at least eight menstrual cycles a year. Not always possible, the more elite the athlete becomes. But as long as we're monitoring a female and understanding why there is not a menstrual cycle, that's what actually matters, okay? Is there a compromise in bone density? Are there decrements in performance? Are there increases in that injury rate, okay? And at the end of the day, an absence in menstrual cycle is also not always indicative of just purely energy or a lack of energy intake, okay? It may be due to stress hormones. Um, and all of a sudden, like a lot of my females will say, hey, I'm going into competition. Here's one of my biggest concerns, Krista, my period's going to show up. Okay, because they've had a really high stressful training block and they're elevating a hormone called prolactin and it is inhibiting completely their ability to have a menstrual cycle. Their energy intake is actually fine, but it's the stress of the training itself. Then as they begin to taper, they're wondering, is it going to show up? And in fact, a lot of times it does. They said it's like all of a sudden it starts crashing down on you. Um, and that's where periodization is really important in learning the female athletes so that we can try to help mitigate that one because we don't want them to have to race on their menstrual cycle. A lot of times as endurance athletes, that's not a pleasant feeling. Um, so we try to make sure we understand menstrual uh, fluctuations for a female as a function of just hard training. So be cognizant that endurance training can cause that menstrual cycle to go away. Uh, whether they're riding the line on energy intake because they are as light and lean as possible or because they are pressing the line with regards to how intense they're training. I love that you brought that up that, you know, a disruption in the menstrual cycle may not be, you know, the the red flag that we originally thought that, oh my goodness, if we miss one period, like we're, we're really in danger here. But I, I do want to go back because um, I mean, a couple of years ago, we had episodes 45 and 46, and they were, I mean, just well received. And those were the impact of triathlon training on, on women's health for number 45, and then on men's health for number 46. And one of the main things we talked about there was, was reds. And so how can, you know, an athlete differentiate, especially here for our female athletes? Okay, I haven't gotten my menstrual cycle how do I know that, you know, this is me just pushing the line versus, oh, this is a sign of reds and, and I'm really, you know, needing to have this looked at a little bit further? Yeah, I think it comes down to a few different things. And, and one of it is that it requires transparency um, with the coach, athlete and a practitioner, whether it's a sport nutritionist, you might bring on a medical physician underneath those circumstances and allowing them to actually evaluate the biochemical status. What I've noticed with many women who have REDS and they truly are riding that line is that they will progressively get such significant diminishment in their sex steroids and even the hormones that are responsible for stimulating the sex steroids that it becomes very apparent. The other thing we see in them is reductions in thyroid hormone that are below normal range. So we tend to dig in on the biochemical side. The other thing that I like to take a look at is what is known as 24-hour urinary cortisol patterns, okay? Um, if they're fueling their bodies well, then you'll typically see a pretty good control of that cortisol. But if they're not, it's going to be outside of range through quite a number of time periods throughout the day. So it's about allowing us to do that and allowing us to have the conversation as to why is that menstrual cycle going away. It's also about the coach allowing us to measure what's known as training load. Training load is really important to have when you're working with athletes to help understand why the biochemical changes may be occurring. Um, and what I've always noticed is that you can differentiate pretty well in a healthy female who has the energy intake, but who's just stressing their body because you'll see the stress hormones elevate it. And they may be inhibiting the menstrual cycle to come on board and, and go ahead and move forward. But overall, those sex steroids are sitting there. Okay. They haven't gone away. It's just they're on pause in essence. Conversely, when women are, you know, not taking in enough energy intake, you'll kind of see that the sex steroids are stomped out or they're below normative range. So are the hormones that are responsible for 
stimulating their production. Um, and you'll see the elevations in cortisol with that. You may also see the, the altered thyroid hormones. At the same time, you can see that for other reasons in a female. So I've had female athletes on birth control that, you know, end up showing up that way. Um, and their energy intake is not overly low, um, but it's just their reaction to the actual birth control itself. So you have to take all the circumstances uh, into consideration and try to understand if it's one or the other or a combination of the two. Okay. So it's not an overnight fix typically. Um, usually the athlete has to be patient enough for us to understand why the menstrual cycle is not there. Um, and I will tell you in my ones that it is purely training induced. As soon as they back off and rest, it shows right up. Um, and that prolactin is elevated. And all of a sudden their body just has this total release. Typically they also sleep better because the prolactin is disrupting their sleep to a certain extent. Um, whereas my ones where it's more of an energy intake issue, it's like, okay, let's sit down and rest you and then increase body weight or then increase energy intake, I should say, and get those cortisol levels down. And then it shows back up. Okay. So it, it is, what does it take to get that menstrual cycle to return? And sometimes it's really hard for women to talk about because they do have reds for a, a variety of reasons, Right. Um, sometimes we push so hard um, because we want to be the best that we can possibly be. And is that a form of REDS? Well, it might not be REDS per se, but it is possibly the overtraining syndrome or an addiction to exercise that's unhealthy. Okay. And what you oftentimes see in those female athletes is that injury comes along because that training load is so high and they're not respecting the need for recovery. So you have to dig in a little bit. There's got to be more transparency and oftentimes just honest conversations as to why this is happening. But that goes back to does the female athlete care about why they're not having that menstrual cycle? I have ones that show up and go, oh, my gosh, you know, why am I not having it? You know, am I going to have an issue having kids? And then I have others who say, Krista, I don't care. I want to be this way. And you have to respect that. Um, and I had one of my elite athletes who for years did not have a menstrual cycle until working with me. She, I think she went, you know, three years or so, at least she said consecutively, she had other periods where she said of time where she didn't have the menstrual cycle. But before she saw me, she said it had been three years. And she said, you know, everyone was so concerned about this menstrual cycle. And she said, yeah, you got it to come back. We did well. We, you know, lost weight. We leaned up. We optimized performance. But she said, here's my feedback to you in working with my own female athletes. I'm okay if they don't have it because I did not suffer long-term consequences. It's an interesting perspective, right? She just said, I was going after performance and performance alone. And I did what was asked of me because everyone wanted my health to be sustained. Okay. Um, but you have to really dig in and have those honest conversations with that athlete. Um, because they may have a different perspective than you, and you have to respect that. So always important. Um, I, I know, Elizabeth, that you do this uh, very strictly with your own training and your own diet. Can you give us an example of what you might pay attention to on, for example, one of your really heavy training sessions that you have? What would you use as a recovery meal after that? What would it look like in terms of the balance of the macronutrients? Yeah, great question. So one of the things that I have found to be a really great resource um, is the like my plate diagrams. And one of the things that I just really appreciate about that is that it goes through and it shows like different examples of, okay, if you're doing, you know, a very high intensity workout and, and what you can use as kind of your like plate distribution of, you know, how much of your plate should be carbohydrates, how much of it should be protein, how much of it can be fat. Um, and then same thing, you know, if you're doing like an, an easier recovery day. And so to be honest, I, <laughs> I have some of those printed out and hanging on the fridge and it's still something that like I'll refer to and be like, okay, you know, if I just went and, and had like an easier um, bike ride, like I probably don't have, you know, the, the same needs, especially, you know, not only in calories, but in carbohydrate demand as I do of, oh my goodness, I just finished like a four hour long ride. 
Um, and so that's one of the resources that I would point a lot of people toward, um, just to give them that good visual representation of how nutrition periodization might look and, and what they could kind of lean on in terms of, you know, what their macronutrient breakdown might be based off of different types of sessions. That is excellent. Thank you so much. I can't wait to go and uh, look at this my plate diagram. That sounds really fascinating. Um, I was really excited to hear you say that we can increase the amount of carbohydrates that we're eating because carbohydrates are like the greatest thing to eat, in my opinion. Um, but I am curious, if you've just had a, a very hard training session and you've expended a ton of energy, you're Carbo- your glycogen levels have decreased significantly throughout the body. Is it possible to overdo it on the carb consumption in a recovery meal? And if it is, would you recommend breaking up that restoration of, of uh, carbohydrates throughout the day or just right after the, the workout session? Or what would you suggest? Yeah, I think there's a couple things you got to pay attention to. You know, one comes down to quality. So that's where I find athletes possibly don't necessarily give their body the quality they need post a massive workout or competition. You know, an example is those that go running for the candy, the the cakes, cookies. They think they can eat whatever they want at that point in time. And they go and they indulge and they kind of forget that those calories do count and they end up not giving their bodies what they need. Okay. They can also do that on the flip side with like protein sources. So I had an athlete who just loved steak after a race and he'd go to like a, you know, a a Brazilian steakhouse and sit down and eat all these meats. And I'm like, yeah, but what about your carbohydrate? You know, like at some point you need to replete and that's, you know, more than carbohydrate that comes from alcohol, quite frankly. Okay. So we have to take a look at the circumstance and understand, you know, are we doing something based on when, how fast we need to recover that may be inhibitory, okay? Um, So I like to encourage people to take more of a balanced approach in the acute recovery phase. Let the mind kind of recover from that energy depletion, especially long course racing, and then start to make decisions about fun foods post-race. Um, The other thing I've seen people do is justify days on end of recovery eating um, where they don't watch what they take in and they think they're supposed to stay eating the way they did immediately (laughs) post-race. So um, I think there's just putting everything into context is really important um, and remembering that the body does need to, to repair. So taking a balanced approach, hopefully initially of things that are easy to eat, but give us the nutrients we need to help repair the muscle, recover, reduce inflammation, get electrolyte balance back is just really important. Then go out and have that fun meal. Um, So just words of wisdom. Um, And and then I will tell you during training, here's the other thing I've seen. Athletes will have a really hard workout or they, for the first time ever, are engaging in prolonged endurance exercise. And then they think it's time for carbs to go through the roof. And they come back to me and they say, why am I gaining all these, all this weight? Like I'm having my carbs to do my long run. I'm having, you know, more carbs because I'm training harder. What's happening? And they don't realize that they didn't actually need it because technically they're not burning it. Um, so I think there's a lot of things just to take caution on when we talk about what is a recovery meal, whether it's training or competing. So I've seen athletes definitely go, go off the edge um, so just trying to be careful about context. I'd, I mean, I know we're running close to the end here, but I, I did want to also talk a little bit about hydration. I feel like we'd almost be remiss if we, we didn't put a question in about that. So I'm going to shift us gears here a little bit. And I, I wanted to pose this question to you. So Dr. Austin, do females need anything different from a hydration standpoint in comparison to the males? Um, I'm going to go back to the menstrual cycle. Okay. Um, Our bodies are really sensitive to the hormone prolactin. And I will tell you that during the luteal phase, when that is elevated and women tell me, oh, I feel so bloated or swollen, we will pay attention to sodium intake, but we'll also pay attention to the type fluids they're taking in to see if they contain excess sodium or carbohydrate and maybe shift a little bit more towards water at that point in time. 
The other thing females report to me, um, and this may be hormonal as well, not 100% confident on this, but they say, you know, I just don't need all that fluid because otherwise I do feel swollen all the time. So we'll step back and take that into consideration, make sure they're doing well in training and competition, and maybe alter the requirements just because their body's unique. Um, I've never had a male come to me and say that, but you have to remember that they may have that going on as well. They might just not notice it. Um, So just be cognizant that women, I think, are more attuned to how their bodies function and when something might not be quite right. And if they're comfortable with another female that maybe has some insight for them, they'll go up and they'll talk about it. So um, I pay attention to their menstrual cycle if they tell me that they feel like their fluid intake needs to be different. Um, So we we go based off of that. But anyone who knows me knows that I say, how do you feel a lot? So um, that may just be, you know, my typical overkill on that question. But, you know, women can have shifts in hormones that require us to to hydrate them a bit differently and, and skew or change the recommended ranges. That is completely fascinating. I had no idea about the interaction between prolactin and the requirement of of sodium um, and potentially decreasing the amount of sodium. I think that's really fascinating and definitely gives the the power to the female to look at how they're feeling at different phases of their cycle and then to recognize that how they're feeling can be impacted by the products that they're using or the food that they're eating. So thank you so much for, for talking about that. I think that's really valuable information. Um, And I also have loved how much we have covered so far today about day-to-day training nutrition. And I'm wondering if there are any special fueling considerations for female athletes on race day that might be different for males. You know, I think everyone's an individual, but I find that females tend to have a more sensitive stomach more frequently. Um, So while there's nothing out there that it's like, hey, this is going to be different for women on the day, What we might find is that just due to sensitivity, um, and this may be hormone-based, just so you know, we may have to find alternative fuel sources for that female so that their gut doesn't get as disrupted. Um, So maybe that is a shift to things like ketone esters, so it's not so carbohydrate dependent. Um, Maybe it's taking a look at high molecular weight carbohydrates because they empty from the stomach easier, and they're just like, yeah, I just get this funky feeling down there, and I, I just you know, don't feel right. So I try to pay attention to how they respond to the different product lines that are out there um, and make sure that we take that into account. There may be a gut-related function um, that we're not 100% dialed in on with regards to women and where they are in their menstrual cycle and how their hormones are impacting carbohydrate transport um, and even their, their ability to sweat, okay? Um, so just something to, to be cognizant of. Now, if you follow the menstrual cycle and training, you should find out those things anyway, because typically they'll report it there. And that's when you have to take a good look at, okay, we're going into competition. When is it going to be? Is it going to be impacted by my menstrual cycle and the changes that my body requires? So we want to step back and take a look at that. Thank you so much. We're done. Yay. (laughs) <laughs> that's not going to be on the recording. <laughs> that's, that's not how we're ending it. That's, that's not how we're, well, maybe we will. I don't know if Andrew will put it in there. Yay, we're done. <laughs> Great set, everyone. Let's cool down. Welcome to the cool down, everyone. I'm Vanessa, your average triathlete with elite level enthusiasm. Today, we are going to hear a coach cool down tip from Tridot coach Diego Navarro. He lives in Stillwater, Oklahoma with his fiance Kelsey, his dog Whimsy, and Huey the Bunny. Diego is currently working as an animal nutritionist for a company that develops botanical solutions from plant extracts to improve the health of pets and livestock. That is a pretty cool career to have. On the triathlon side of things, Diego has been a triathlete for over 15 years and became a TriDot athlete in 2020 and a coach in 2022. He is currently working with athletes from all corners of the world in the US, Australia, and the Philippines. Diego is passionate about nutrition and race fueling strategies and uses his robust educational background to help his athletes cross the finish line with an abundance of energy, perfectly hydrated, and a happy gut. 
One thing that not many people know about Diego is that he has co-authored or authored 11 peer-reviewed publications and over 20 conference proceedings, abstracts, and popular press articles in animal nutrition. So tell us, Diego, how many degrees do you actually have? Well, first of all, hi, Vanessa. It's great to be here. And to answer your question, I have a total of five. So two masters in business and a bachelor's, master's, and PhD in animal sciences and nutrition. But it is true that the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. So my academic journey has definitely been a very humbling experience. I 100% agree with you. Yeah, the deeper you get in, the more you realize that you actually don't know very much at all because everything is so intricate and detailed and there's so many levels to all of the things. <laughs> so Absolutely. That's, uh, that's really impressive and um, that's awesome. So what nutrition tip do you have for us today? My nutrition tip is to start training your gut a few months before race day. And months meaning plural, so I would suggest about at least 12 weeks out mm -hmm. and because you need time to improve your tolerance for the amount of carbohydrates and fluids you'll be ingesting and the total volume they will occupy in your gut so first you can work on your hydration plan by determining your sweat rate and if possible sweat sodium concentration especially in the absence of the longer workouts where you would be training your carbohydrate tolerance. And the next step is then to get used to the amount of fluids you will have to drink in order not to get too dehydrated. Now, if you ask, if you ask uh, nutritionists or coaches, they have different numbers as to how much dehydration is is tolerated by the body and be okay. Um, uh, I mean, if you ask me, that would be about 2% would be a good number. So for example, if you're an individual whose sweat rate is about a liter per hour, you will need to drink about 700 to 900 mils per hour. Of course, depending on the conditions and the duration right. of your race. Uh, just a quick question. Is that an average amount of sweat loss for a person? Like on average, people lose about a liter an hour? Well, that depends on the intensity of workout, mm. of course, right. the, the temperature. But uh, I typically sweat more than that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so 700 to 900 mils, you add all of that up. And now you're talking about, especially for half or full Ironman, those are big volumes and you need to get used to all of that volume. So now when you get to your longer sessions, you can incorporate training your gut for carbohydrates by slowly increasing the amount you ingest, uh, say every week or every other week, uh, until you hit or even exceed your targets. So there will be discomfort. But that is why you train your gut, to allow your gut to make adaptations to what you are subjecting it to. So this is similar to, say, a three by eight minute threshold session, right? So you will get little to no benefit or adaptation if you stop after the first set due to discomfort, because then it becomes too hard. Your legs burn and then you stop. So. To make it a little easier, start early and train your gut about maybe once or twice a week in a variety of different sessions to improve comfort level of your gut on race day. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe and share the TriDot podcast with your triathlon crew. For more great Tri content and community, connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. Ready to optimize your training? Head to TriDot.com and start your free trial today. TriDot, the obvious and automatic choice for triathlon training.